episode of Epicenter Bitcoin is brought to you by Shapeshift.io. With no account or signup required, it's the easiest way to buy and sell gems, counterparty, Dogecoin, Dash, and other leading cryptocurrencies. Go to Shapeshift.io to instantly convert your altcoins and to discover the future of cryptocurrency exchanges. And by Voltoro.com, the gold to Bitcoin exchange. Trade gold to Bitcoin instantly and securely starting at just one milligram. Go to Voltoro.com to deposit some Bitcoin and start trading today. Hi, welcome to Epicenter Bitcoin, the show which talks about the technologies, projects, and startups driving decentralization and the global cryptocurrency revolution. My name is Sebastian Couture. And my name is Brian Fabian Crane. We're here today with uh, John Klippinger. He has a has had a long history in technology, in law, and in thinking about these issues. So he is currently is the co-founder of ID Cubed. They wrote a book, they published a book that was called Bitcoin, Burning Man, and Beyond. And uh, when we saw the title, someone recommended it to me. It was like, obviously, we need to have him on. And he's also a research scientist at MIT Media Lab. And previously, he was at the Harvard. He was uh, the founder of the Harvard Law Lab. And he was also at the Berkman Center there, which is, I think, quite well known for pioneering some of the thinking about internet law. So, John, thanks so much for joining us today. Well, thank you for having me. I'm looking forward to the conversation. Yeah, absolutely. So. You've, you've been thinking about some of these issues that have come up with Bitcoin now for a long time. Many of you, of course, will not be familiar with your work, but can you give a little bit of an introduction about what has brought you here to start thinking about you know, blockchain and, and how that fits in? Well, for many years, I've been very active involved in so the intersection of technology and policy and society. And going back to my college years when I was uh, helped set up the first sort of protest against the, uh, the war in Vietnam, I was actively involved in the civil rights movement and the, worked with the Black Panther program. So, and, I, and I've also been interested in the whole area of development and, and, and developing countries. I was, uh, was a uh, research associate at Harvard many years ago in the, in the program for information resources policy looking at developing countries. And I've always tried to track and see how technology shapes people and people shape technology and how the interaction between the two. And in that interest, I've also did my sort of graduate work and been fascinated by the notion of cybernetics and self-organizing systems. And this goes back into the way back in the 80s and 70s, actually, even. Um, well, how do you design systems that are self-organizing, that are goal-directed, that correct themselves? Uh, that can learn, and there was a lot of activity then. Uh, a lot of it came out of MIT in those years, um, and but the computational power wasn't there really to build systems uh, that could do that. My PhD thesis was uh, basically designing a model of language, language discourse generation and cognition that was highly distributed, um, and saying how can you control complex linguistic and cognitive processes in a highly decentralized way. So the whole, what's happened in Bitcoin more recently uh, in, in the arrival of the currency, again, this is something I've been in, interested with people like Bernard Letier, who does work, who was a designer of the Euro, uh, written extensively on currency design and how currencies reflect policies, uh, is that, that currencies are not neutral with respect to policies. And if you look at how you can affect policy, not just uh, economic policy, but social policy, the nature of the currency becomes very important. Hence, when Bitcoin came uh, on, the, on the horizon, it was arrived, uh, it was very fascinating to me. And actually, when we first formed ID Cubed, we had a uh, meeting, a dinner, uh, at the State House in Massachusetts where the revolution began. And we had a big dinner celebrating the revolution in the financial services industry primarily, where we handed out gold coins that said, in, in, in data we trust. And we tried to get Bitcoin people to come to our event, but that was, it was really early. And I think with Bitcoin was selling at $12 then. Um, but it was, it was the idea that you could have a highly decentralized open source incentives mechanism that actually could launch a change and challenge a lot of current institutional structures, which I, always, I currently believe now are, are failing. Uh, they're, they're artifacts of another era, um, and they're really 
If you look at the, the institutions that we have designed their artifacts in the Enlightenment, uh, when America had 3 million people, not 330 million people, when we didn't have the technology, it's just, it doesn't scale. Uh, there are wonderful principles there, but we really have to think fundamentally about institutional design and governance itself. Um, so the idea that you can have uh, the ledger and, the, and that you can sign for things without having a third party and you can run scripts and run contracts on top of that that execute and prove certain premises are really important. Um, when I was at the Berkman Center, started the law lab there, um, developed a, a self-executing contract that uh, we took a, a, a Wilson CD term sheet and made it into a program and then we applied genetic, genetic algorithms to generate new uh, variants of that and, and prove that you could actually have uh, contracts that are computational approval. Well, that, that was in the 1980, uh, 2011 and 12, I guess. No, even earlier than that, I think in 2009. So w we were anticipating what happened with Ethereum and smart contracts. Uh, not to say we're the first, but um, I think we're on the edge of a very profound revolution and how to think about currencies and institutions. So the idea of, of decentralization distribution was, was, was part of it before and then I guess we have with Bitcoin, oh, yeah. Ethereum all, then it just sort of all came together, right? Because exactly. all of a sudden... I'm curious how you achieve that, uh, how do you achieve those, the well, I guess, precursors to smart contracts without blockchain technology? How, how did you achieve the decentralization aspect of it? Well, we didn't, we, didn't, we didn't focus on the decentralization aspect of it. I mean, we, our focus was you know, how do you look at a, a contract as, as a program and how do you make it algorithmic? And so what we did is, I mean, uh, we used, created a list program in which we represented sort of the, we translated the terms of the contract into list programs. And so you could change, you could change the language of the contract, say the, the terms of a participating preferred to, do the, the, uh, to common and someone could see the effect on their on their cap table. They could say, "Oh my God, you know, I didn't realize that when you change this, that my my shareholdings go from thirty percent to three percent." And then we tied it in, into actuarial tables, and and that was another thing that we were able to um, show that the likelihood, given the Kaufman did a lot of studies on this, was that uh, there was very low likelihood that people would be able to. Uh, get an exit the way they thought they would. So it, it was an attempt to prove a concept and then um, be able to uh, write a program that was provably complete and using genetic algorithms, which is a nice, a nice feature to that. That was really cool. We could generate uh, a, a lot of variants, set fitness conditions on the outcomes that we wanted and see how we could approximate a solution that took into different, the different intentions. So you mentioned in the beginning that your your focus was sort of has been on the intersection between technology and and policy. And when I was reading your white paper, uh, one thing that struck out to me is that you seem to think of technology as something very political. And you often hear the phrase that technology is neutral, and especially in the Bitcoin space, many people say like Bitcoin is neutral. So, so how, how how do you think about these issues? Well, I, I think that, you know, technology, I mean, and there's some people that have written some, I mean, Kevin Kelly's written some great pieces on it. And, uh, Brian Arthur, uh, who's an economist, has written a thing, sort of a, the, as technology as almost an evolutionary force, uh, we co-evolve with technology. So I don't think we can disentangle ourselves from technology. Technology reflects human intention and human understanding. And it also reflects this, this, the relative power equations of different people uh, with access to resources. I think when you look at the Bitcoin and the Bitcoin protocol, uh, that inherent in that is a certain assumption about um, a, a public and private goods. It, it, and this is, what I, this is one of my concerns about this, the community and understanding that these, these problems have been, been thought about for quite some time. Um, and so it's it, but the difference between a public and a private good, a, a difference between a one-time game and a multiplayer game. You start to look at game theory and you start to think, well, what, what, forms, of, how, what forms of cooperation are possible in order to get a stable outcome uh, and for a, a preferred distribution of goods or services? 
And the Bitcoin reflects a particular private goods model, so like a one-time game. And it's very sort of in your Chicago school. Uh, it is a reflects that mentality of uh, impersonal exchange, one-time game. It's a one-time player. And it's an incentive that is sort of a zero-sum game. So you know, each time uh, you're doing uh, the mining, you 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 don't you don't you don't know the identity of the person. That you assume that everyone's out for themselves. Uh, so there's a high trustless. I mean, you don't trust anyone. Therefore, you're going to you need to create a mechanism uh, in the, that verifies the, the consensus, the proof of work that that verifies the uh, uh, the transaction. Um, but there are other incentive mechanisms, um, and, and I should also say that the Bitcoin itself is sort of like it, it, it's sort of a, it's a uh, it's what they call it's officially a demand backed current a demand backed asset. That's how the U.S. Commodities Exchange law, uh, defines it. It's a very fascinating definition because it's not grounded in any real asset, but it's still sort of a gold bug kind of thing. Uh, it, it, and, and I think that was the intention, uh, and you're going to limit it. It's deflationary. It's, it's, so it ref and it can be highly speculative in that way. So it, it reflects a particular view of a class of currencies. There are other kinds of currencies that are different, and, and this is true throughout history. You have, uh, you have like two different currency models. Typically, one's gold, the other is silver. And one is to create liquidity and create interaction. Uh, but Bitcoin, in a sense, is built on the sense that you don't trust a central authority, and that you have to limit the the issues of the coin, and so it is sort of rivalrous. Either some I have it, or someone else, uh, but it's 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 not. The more you create it, the more deflationary, less value it has. Um, but there's thinking about digital information-based currencies that are what I call cooperative currencies, and this is based upon. A lot of people's work, but uh, I would reference uh, Brian Arthur, who is an economist and uh, works at the Santa Fe Institute and talks about the theory of increasing returns. And that's a different model. It says information, when you're in a digital world, it, you know, that the more the information is, is, is disseminated, the more people possess it, the more value it has. Whereas in a physicalized asset, say is gold, it's rivalrous. So you, you're creating shortages, you're creating, you're speculating in shortages. And you make money off the difference between the supply and demand of the shortage. Where in the information-based currency, you actually want wide acceptance, uh, and and the broader the, that information flows, the greater value for everybody. Yeah, so I, I saw that as well, and I thought it was quite striking how you talked about that. But don't you think that for money or a currency to be valuable, it has to be scarce? No, I think it has to have inherent value. I also think, and, and actually, I made the point in the white paper. And, and Bernard, the the, the I mean, he's a currency designer. They will say you need both. Um, and I, the analogy I make, um, I think, is is uh, in the paper, is to I mean, the 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 I don't know people are familiar with it. There's a program called Deadwood. It was sort of like the settling of the of the West. And when you didn't have rules and you didn't have, and it was sort of the survival of the fittest, you really, you, you, want, you want to have a currency that is like Bitcoin, it's like gold. You can trust it in its hair itself. You don't, re, you don't depend upon a, a, a party to accept it. It's a one-time game. It's a zero-sum game. I either have it or you have it. But as what happens is you start to get repeat games, and then you start to get ideas of boundaries and the sheriffs, and you have different ways of, of, of creating cooperative behavior, then you want another currency that is, is, is cooperative and, and increases by the value of use. And this is where, you, you're not, and this is, there's a lot of stuff in game theory on this, is, is that when you have a repeat game, you, you, uh, and you know the person you're develop, working with, and you have a reputation metric, you can create higher outcomes for everybody doing that. And I also cited the work by uh, Martin Novak. Um, there are a lot of work that's being done in evolutionary biology that says this is also true of biological systems, that you have higher outcomes, uh, the evolutionary stable solutions, when you have some kind of collaboration through known reputational identity, and you have to have the reputational, and then you do with a, sheer, a, a sheer, um, uh, sort of... Um, one-time game, rivalrous outcome. Yeah, what would such a currency actually look like, though? Well, I mean, it's something where you're, you're, there are a number of people who are, are developing these things, and I, actually, Primavera is, is, is 
we mentioned we had talked about earlier has some ideas of this but there's uh, we're looking at something like an artisan coin or artisan currency um, where and I've been I referenced Bitcoin and Burning Man that when I was in Burning Man and talking to Larry Harvey and they were talking he was talking about well he would like to have a gift kind of currency that would be in other words people acknowledge what other people do and they get they accrue some kind of credits for that and those credits are are can be uh, they can be exercised in the context of of, uh, of a uh, a different kind of social contract um, so if you go to Burning Man and you'd have all these people working together basically for a public good and you have you have uh, you you have mechanical engineers. You have carpenters. You have all these people coming together to build stuff. And it, what we'd like to, Larry was saying, a lot of people like to acknowledge that. So it's like a, a gift exchange currency that and that people are able to acknowledge what other people do, and you can actually develop so social capital that way. Well, that's a. And in order to do that, you're looking at something as a repeat game. It's not rivalrous. And when you look at an artisan economy, you want to buy something. Not be, you don't want to create you don't want to create shortages. You want to go back and you want to have a repeat experience with someone who you value for what they create. It's not a standardized product. It's it's not a uh, what you're valuing is what is unique about it. And you want to be able to then bring other people to appreciate that uniqueness. And it's not a you're not rivalrous. You want to work with them to be successful, and it's a, their success is your success. So it ties into empathy and shared theories of mind. That's another area. A lot of work has been done in evolutionary biology. That that's a, a, a critical aspect. When people have shared theories of mind, then they have their coordination costs and their social value create is, is vastly increased. But do you think that's compatible with the, I guess, current state of the world of the economy and how, how in large part we're moving away from artisan economies? Well, I, I mean, I think we're actually moving back to that. I, I, I think I think you're seeing a failure of, of, of the, I mean, the, the classic failures in Wall Street, I mean, is, 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 is a case in point. I, I, I actually think we're going to move away from that. I and I and I, uh, I and I'm not saying that you're not going to have things like a a Bitcoin or a gold base or a limited. I think you're going to have a combination of the two because you're always going to have cases where people cheat and fail one another. So you have to you have to have something that is sort of trustless. But the 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 benefits of having an identity and having a reputation and being able to to distribute and create resources around that i think far outweigh the the artificial creation of shortages which really don't exist they're choke points that benefit some parties so that's where your power laws come in and that's and that's and that's why you have this huge disparity of wealth and that genie index kind of things accentuating because you people think oh that's a natural consequence you got preferential attachment therefore you get power laws we we can't do anything about that i don't agree with that at all Today's show is brought to you by your friends at Shapeshift. Of course, Shapeshift is the fast and easy way to trade altcoins, and they now support over 45 of the most popular altcoins, including Counterparty, Ripple, Gems, and so many others that I've never even heard of. And they now support, you guessed it, Ether. Since the release of the Frontier launch, Shapeshift has added Ether to the list of supported currencies. And so now you can buy Ether and start building some start contracts on Ethereum. Now there is a small caveat, and this is true for every exchange at the moment, is that it can take up to six hours for you to get your transaction confirmed. But uh, just stay patient and you'll get some Ether and you'll start building some really cool smart contracts very soon. And just as if Ether wasn't enough, they're also doing this cool thing with a gaming company called Spells of Genesis that's putting some of these in-game assets on, on the blockchain. And, and one of those they're selling in a very limited amount, like 25 every week only on, on Shapeshift. So that's called The Wanderer and it's called Spells of Genesis. So if you're a gamer, if you're interested in that, check it out because of course it's a very interesting way to make this sort of fake scarce asset actually scarce by, by using the blockchain. So uh, head over to Shapeshift.io and give it a try. We'd like to thank Shapeshift for their support of Epicenter Bitcoin. Uh, I guess what, what becomes very central in what you're talking about then though is, is the question of identity, you no? Know? Because if you have yes. anonymous yes. party that can just join, well, you can't, exactly. like there's the abuse right? can happen. Exactly right. So all societies, when, when, they, when they really succeed,
I mean, people internalize, uh, and this is one of the points I tried to make, rather than have the state impose it, I mean, instead of norms. So basically, you want people to internalize and generalize certain codes of conduct that it's in their interest to be uh, adhered to and hold. So when you have really strong reputational identity signals that you can be relied upon, then you eliminate enormous amounts of inefficiency in the society. You don't, and, and you actually create much more abundance. So the identity component is very, very important in my mind. And I think that at the same time is the fact that people, uh, this is where the notion of self-sovereign identity becomes very important, is that I could, he enrolls controls. So if the government issues the identity credential or the bank does it, then basically they have, they're the control point. And so we're talking about a new kind of uh, third, a new kind of third-party organization. It's not private sector. It's not public sector. It's more like an open-source sector. And there's a set of protocols I can go through that I can, I can establish my identity, set, establish certain certificates that other people rely upon. They'll take that risk, and I can build upon that, and I can control. I have control over my own data that I can create legitimate credentials that express who I am that other people can rely upon. And that flattens the authority structure that we currently have that's very static and is like tens of thousands of years old. We're still running society on a patriarchal lineage system <laughs> that, was, you know, that goes back into our, our deep past. I mean, so, so, so if I can oversimplify that, that model, then rather than having, say, the government issue identity cards and that becomes your sole means of, of proving your identity, right. you have multiple sources which can together come together and form a, 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 right. a consensus around who you are. Right. Um, but however, I mean, identity on the Internet is something that is quite malleable. Uh, well, you can make it non-malleable. I mean, I mean, they're, they're, you can have multiple identities. Everyone's going to have and you. And, right. And that, that's the point I wanted to make. So then yeah. does that does well, the fact that well, we can have multiple identities not cause a problem for social yes, order? It, yeah, yeah I, it does. You, that's why you have to anchor it in a root identity. In other words, you can't let someone game the system. I mean, and this is, you know, this is one of the problems with the head going way back to PayPal and things like that, that you, you can, you can, you know, you can gain the system and then you can get people to trust in a particular persona identity and then you can change and, and, and screw them. So you need, and you need to anchor it in some, you, I need to anchor my identities in a root identity. What I mean by root identity is something that's tied to me to my biological, physical self. Now, I don't need to have that identity be uh, fully disclosed. I can have it be authenticated and anonymous. And I can, uh, so I can have an, a persona out there that has certain verified attributes but doesn't reveal who I am uh, on, a, on a PII basis. I can, I can reserve that. How would you tie the, your physical identity to these other identities? What you have to do, and actually this is some in the work we're doing on, you need, you need to get a, a, a collection of unique identifiers. It's almost uh, saying that I as an individual have certain unique patterns that distinguish me from anyone else. So those can be biometric and behavior metric patterns. And in combination, they create something that, I don't know if you're familiar with, like an eigenvector that uniquely identifies me. Um, and I can, you know, and I, I, I can encrypt that and I can verify that and I can I can prevent and, uh, and use that as a core credential. How do you prevent that uh, input data isn't forged? Well, I mean, there, 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 you're always going to, everyone, it's an arms race and how these things happen, we all know. Um, but what, what you can do is mitigate the uh, vulnerability of having multiple dimensions of these things. So, and they can be updated in real time. The other thing with, with that that we're learning, and, I, and, I, and this may reference an earlier conversation, is, is the idea of cybernetic versus uh, models, uh, software models, uh, is that you're constant, we're constantly getting data updated all the time. So we can compute our, our metrics, we can compute our distributions on the fly. And, and, and we can have one-time tokens, we can have, we, and we have highly decentralized uh, and distributed system, it's very difficult actually uh, when the, with these new kind of architectures to uh, basically uh, spoof them. Uh, it's not to say it can't be done, but it, 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 the cost goes up dramatically, particularly given what we have now, which is totally archaic. 
So where do you see? Uh, it's uh, let's let's project like ten years in the future. What do you see the state of identity being then? Are we still looking at a system where we have a hierarchical? I, think that, I don't think it's going to be hierarchical. I think I think this this revolution is imminent. Um, I really and I think Bitcoin is is a huge. I mean, is a huge. Uh, vector for that change, um, and uh, I think that. I mean, I was just talking to the 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 CIO of the uh, the new CIO of the federal government, Tony Scott, and uh, and he's he 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 basically buys into the whole idea of decentralized blockchain based services for identity and for government uh, security, and they have something called security by design. They're looking at. Uh, and that's a very decentralized system. So that brings us to the, to the topic of, of governance then. Um, you know, there are, there's been the rise of decentralized technologies uh, in the recent years, especially due to the rise in you know, Bitcoin. Um, and in, in those circles, many have suggested that governance could be decentralized, becoming more and more obvious uh, with the recent release of Ethereum. And right. uh, people have speculated that uh, governments, governance and institutions could be decentralized um, what are the first? I mean, I'm, I, we always we always hear these 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 ideas, but with no real concrete. Um, right. What are, what, are the, what, what, what are the what are the things that could be decentralized? So, where where, where do you think the first areas of decentralized governments are going to come from? What are the first things that governments are going to start to decentralize? Essentially. Well, I think they're, 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 they're the one of the things that you can do in a, in a decentralized manner so much more effectively. And not only in terms of coordination costs and expense and everything else, um, yeah, is um, and this is where the blockchain is so, so amazing. I mean, and you you look at remittances and payments and being able to verify transactions and identities and do that through smart contracts and hold um, and be able to hold hold money or hold identities or hurl hold some asset in escrow and release it. When, when provided the appropriate credentials, that is so pervasive, uh, and I think what you're looking at the and I've worked with a number of banks and how to, they 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 totally have to rethink what they're doing. Um, and what happens is you have a regulatory structure right now uh, in a banking structure. It's a hub and spoke model, and they and there's this impossible preponderance of cost that, that for financial regulation that makes the regulations by the time they're written they're out of date. They're huge costs. Um, they only served in many cases to to help the incumbents, but yet it, it, it creates this burden. The fact that you can decentralize um, the payments and remittances systems uh, in a distributed way and have oversight that is uh, basically, um, and there, you can use uh, smart contracts, you can use multi-party computation methods, a variety of ways in which you can do it. That's going to unlock so much value and have so much savings. It's just it, it it can't be resisted. I mean, I look at this as very analogous to what happened to banks is what happened to the newspaper industry, say, fifteen years ago. Um, and they, you know, they oh no, will not affect us. We'll become portals. We'll adapt. No, they come. They could not adapt. It's a very different model, so it really affects them. And and so that's you know that's that's the thing that I think you're going to see. Um, and I think another area that that is, is interesting is is the whole idea of, of location-based data and an Internet of Things. And I mean, how are we going to scale Internet of Things without having some kind of de decentralized autonomous contracts into that? You know, I think that's that's an inevitability. Um, and I have dealt with a number of, say, companies, car companies, they're capturing all this location data and things like that. And the question, they're, they're in breach of, of, of the EU uh, data directive. But if you have uh, API calls and enforce the, uh, the regulations through API calls, then, then you don't have to have a high you know, governance. It, it can be done very well. And, and I think that um, these are the areas where you can see some of the innovations coming. Um, There's all sorts of companies that are working on, on various aspects of this. So you you mentioned the newspaper industry and, and so that that they they did have the the monopoly of, of information but they didn't right. have an imposed monopoly uh, that monopoly could and has been dethroned the the difference with governance is that the monopoly is imposed by power um, right. 
what apart from the cost savings potentially which i think are pretty obvious um don't you think government governments would have and institutions would have resistance uh to decentralizing uh their institutions since they would essentially be losing control like they're i don't i don't know if they're ready for that paradigm shift <laughs> well i think what you're, what you're seeing is is a failure of traditional governance institutions so they're genuinely looking they, they're losing legitimacy i mean this is what this election is all about whatever you call it um and and so p- I, I think, and what you're seeing in certain cities is, is, is I think, and this is what's interesting. Uh, there's a lot of movement in the cities, and there's, I think, uh, the maker movements in cities. The, the, the idea to get citizen participation. I we talked about. Uh, I've talked about in several areas what I call governance-free zones, but but, but it's like enterprise-free zone. Allow people to actually start to take over and run some of the local services. And agencies, uh, there are housing authorities, and there are whole lots of, of traditional government functions that that are performed so poorly. I mean, Tim O'Reilly talks about this as government is, is a platform, and 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 that you should allow people, you know, allow sort of API access to different services, but actually in the delivery of the services too, and you can start to you create competing uh, institutions that that. Uh, that could compete with a, a traditional government uh, way of dispersing uh, benefits. So actually, in the UK, they're looking at this, developing a GovCoin for dispensing of, of, of benefits. And so you're creating a new kind of currency around benefits that can only be used within a certain context. And that creates a, a different kind of microeconomy. And people will start experiment with that. And I think that's going to be much more effective, more responsive, more savings, more engaging, participatory. And what will happen is the governments will say, okay, we're, we're going to move up. We'll become more meta. We'll let, we'll, let, we'll let these decentralized networks provide more of the function, and we'll set certain ground rules. Um, and actually, the, there's um, something called NSTIC, which is National Tra- Strategy for Trusted Identities in Cyberspace that came out of the Obama administration. They were saying, yeah, maybe around identity and personal data, the government doesn't doesn't try to figure out at all the details. They just set up the, the 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 meta rules, and provide safe harbor provisions, allow people to experiment at it, and 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 try to to establish those meta rules. I think that's what's going to happen. Um, do, you, do you think that this change? So you mentioned that the government's doing some of this change. Do, do you think that's more the way it's going to happen, or do you think yeah. that people will just sort of create these? quasi-governmental organizations uh, using blockchains that then will take on some of the functions but without actually the permission or endorsement from proper governmental bodies. Well, here's what you're seeing already. You're seeing this already. (laughs) Um, If you look at Uber and you look at Airbnb, you know, know, Uber is what, $45 billion? They're breaking all the rules. And, and, but they're, they're, they've achieved such scale and they actually try to benefit the people want. Uh, and there's a whole set of services that, that are going against the traditional government models and regulations. They're forcing the government to change. And, and uh, I think you're going to see that pervasive. So the government's going to have to adapt to these changes. And it's going to have to reframe its role. Not to say it's going to roll over, not to say there's not going to be a lot of resistance. But I, I, I think in the U.S., for example, I think there's a huge disaffection with the, the, the role of the federal government. It's just, it, it's, it's not that these things shouldn't be done. I mean, this is a tension between the progressives and the Tea Party and the grassroots and the Bitcoiners and, and the, so the libertarian view. Um, I mean, I, I think in the extreme libertarian view, it's like there, there's, and that's sort of the Chicago school. There's like no oversight. You know, do not tread on me. You know, I don't want you can't tell me what to do. Uh, and there's no sense of communitarian responsibility. I think that's extreme. Uh, I do think they're going to come. You're going to reframe the problem. It's not going to be a big government solution. That just doesn't work. That doesn't scale. But you have to have governance, and you have and you're going to governance becomes a kind of technology. Just imagine. If you're able to have governance as a technology, and that starts to innovate the way you have in Moore's Law, that just changes everything. And I think there are problems, fundamental problems that have been around forever, like who guards the guards uh, in this whole idea of it, that can be solved. I really believe they can be solved 
through zero knowledge proof and new kind of technologies that, that will make that maybe not solve all the cases, but 80-20 and make a huge difference. Uh, so we're at, we're at a threshold of being able to solve some very intractable problems about how people run the govern themselves. And I, I find that very exciting. One of the things you mentioned that I thought was was a was a great point regarding that is that if you have a if you have a regular government body or, or some sort of institution, right over time they start having employees uh, and their rules, and of course those right. people start having their own interests, and all of a sudden you know when it was just supposed to provide a service, now it has its its own right interests, and I think you know in Europe, for example, with the you and uh, ECB and, and all those, one, one sees that extremely strongly. And I think in the U.S. is also a great example where yes. uh, the government has uh, enormous power. And, and I think it's interesting to think that, oh, maybe with decentralized autonomous organizations and things like that, right, where there's sort of transparent rules and there really isn't something in the middle that starts taking on its own interests, maybe we could right. get rid of some of that corruption Absolutely. I think that's a huge, hugely important. Uh, I, I think what happens with bureaucracies is they, and, and government is they become their own interest group. And then as their own interest group, they, they, are, they allocate resources and budgets in terms of perpetuating themselves rather than their constituencies. And I think we need to open that up and decentralize that and actually make I mean, it, it returns back to a notion that, well, maybe those functions can be distributed out broadly in the community. So the way you do it in an open source movement, there are people that have certain, this is where credentials and reputation becomes really important. So if I had a really strong set of credentials that were established and, and I could then solve a quote government problem uh, and, and collections of people could do that. So it doesn't have to be this hard divide between what's public and private sector. That's why I think that's a false dichotomy here um, and, and, and so, not just public and private sector but what you what you call in your white paper citizen sourcing and it's what you're mentioning now right so yeah i really think citizen sourcing is is, is, is a real option here and and you can and it's just not you know a do good feel good i mean you can have a high level professionalism in a citizen's com competency and of that, course. and that is the way i mean look with the athenian democracy when it worked it was a very short period of time but actually republics when they worked that's why they worked and, uh, and, and, and the best part of the, when the U.S. in its early phases, that, that, that's the way it worked. And even the early Ro Roman Republic was that way. You had, you had people take an active role in government, and it wasn't a, in, 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 they weren't there to, to lard their nest. I mean, the, what I see, this of another generation, when, I, when I, was, I did work in Washington and helped set up an agency there and. Uh, you went there with the intent of giving back. It was a public service thing. It wasn't a way of, of, of bootstrapping your career. Now it's just like Washington is owned by K Street. I mean, it's it's, it's that's just a fact. And the Supreme Court has said it's fine. You know, go ahead. So this is United ruling. So it it it, it sort of really has undermined the core democratic principle. <laughs> You're listening to this show in parts thanks to all the support we get from our great sponsors. We have some, some fantastic companies we work with and we're very proud of what they do and of, of their products and the companies we're happy to stand behind. Every week we reach a large audience of, of thousands and thousands of people deeply involved in the Bitcoin cryptocurrency space, people running companies, people having a lot of influence and people who are just enthusiastic about technology, about progress and about the future. So if you're involved in a project or startup and think that reaching our audience could help you, email show at epicenterbitcoin.com and let's talk. Now, with the idea of, of citizen sourcing, uh, this has come to mind. So, I mean, I agree that, you know, given, for instance, uh, let's say you have a neighborhood and, you know, there, there are issues or problems in that neighborhood, who better to, to solve those problems than the people actually living in it than, you know, perhaps a local government or a federal government or what have you coming in and trying to, to solve those. But where does that citizen sourcing stop? Because it seems like there it seems to me that you could have a risk there if you start getting into, uh, you know, citizens ensuring security, citizens policing, that sort of thing, where you could get into some sort of touchy situations there. Oh, really good question. I, I, I think, uh, I, I do think that um, 
you know, you, you, have to, you, you, you have to think of an architecture of governance and accountability and transparency. So you really need to architect institutions to perform different functions. And, and you need to hold them accountable. Um, so when I'm, when I'm thinking of citizen sourcing, it's not like crowdsourcing, just throwing everything out. No, I think there's, there's, there's a set of different kinds of institutional designs and roles for that that you need to establish. And, and it's an opt-in system. I mean, so, and people have different preferences as to how much and how little they want to be governed and this and that. Uh, and they're, they're, you know, they're natural differences in personality and disposition and, but I, I think there are ways, and it's an empirical issue, is, is how to design certain kinds of efficacious institutions. And, and so if corruption is an issue, well, then how do you, if you're using certain forms of encryption and, and ver authentication, and you can do chain of custody on data, and you have, uh, you have ledgers that you can audit, uh, and you can rotate in and out people in positions of power in a... In, in a in a non-gameable way, and I think you can, then you can create more effective kinds of institutions of oversight that themselves learn rather than try to arrest development and try to protect a, a, a special set of interests. And, uh, and this can be an area of genuine innovation, uh, experimentation. Um, and, and then there, I think there are certain empirical solutions that, that one can test. Have we seen this before in, in history? Is it, have there been examples of this sort of citizen governance? Uh... Um, we're, we're moving into an era, you know, whether you believe in the singularity, literally, we are having a convergence of technologies, and how we think about technologies is how we build our futures. And uh, that's never happened before. I mean... We can, you know, we can we can hack the human brain. We can hack our genome. We can hack everything, uh, and and that's only increasingly true. So that's when I in the paper I made a big emphasis is is that to understand the magnitude of those changes and put them in a historical context, the kind of things that we're doing, not see it in such isolation uh, of a particular expertise. But we are we are things are up for grabs. But yeah, I, I think. That's also one of my expectations and hopes is that when, when you start having blockchains maybe integrated in all kinds of areas and all kinds of systems, and initially, of course, often it will be because there's a commercial benefit to it, right? It's, it's cheaper, it makes something possible that wasn't right. possible before. But then that over time, actually, uh, the effect, and, and that might even be a secondary effect often, is that actually it reduces corruption, it reduces some of these flawed incentives that we have today oh yeah i mean i don't i i, I don't look at it as a secondary intent i look at it as, as a, a design point i mean i that that that's what interests me i, I think mean, it's I really wanna... yeah i think it's a design point of blockchains but when people will adopt it in a commercial setting you know they might not do it for that reason that might be a, a side oh, right. effect but i i do think that the the the, the, the need to have things that that are I mean, trust is important in commercial settings. Transparency and predictability, and how do you manage risk? I mean, those actually all create value. And so, it, it, and I think the ability to uh, create systems to perform that way. I mean, if you have a highly trusted, highly learning system that is rapidly evolves and 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 changes and, and is able to to maintain high levels of of sort of value creation versus one. That is maybe not governed, but hacked and not and porous. It's just, it, it's going to outcompete that. Um, I just I, I just think we're you're, we're at a point of different kinds of competing institutional economic designs. Today's magic word is mustard, M U S T A R D. Go to letstalkbitcoin.com to sign in, enter the magic word, and claim your part of the listener reward. So this ties into a lot of your work uh, regarding cybernetics and AI. Um, I, I've often had this sort of idea that, you know, uh, smart contracts, although they are very primitive uh, um, individually, together, when you, when you have multiple smart contracts, 
it starts to resemble a living that multiple start smart contracts that are interacting with each other and and, and doing all types right. of things. They it starts to look like a living organism. Totally um, great. Is that how you see it? Oh, I definitely see that. I mean, I think we're. I mean, and by a living organism, and that's where cybernetics is so interesting. Um, and, and and people, a lot of people are not familiar with cybernetics, but. The whole idea is goal. I mean, it, it was a teleological system. It's the system that had a goal, that had feedbacks, that tried to maintain certain equilibria. It could be dynamic equilibria. There could be multiple systems working together. Um, but it, 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 it's like, well, how do you, how do you approximate living things uh, through cybernetic mechanisms? And and you and I've always been interested in the work that's done by the Santa Fe Institute, in which they've really started working on this twenty five years ago. And I think what you find is that the notion of cybernetics is sort of mutated in the notion of, of, of complex adaptive systems, and, and, and where it's John Holland's work. Um, and that's gotten very sophisticated and in, in, in applied to lots of different fields. Uh, I think there's a rich body of knowledge uh, uh, looking at things this way, uh, and a lot of it does come out of the Santa Fe Institute, uh, and looking at social systems uh, the, the, this way. Uh, there's guys work of Sam Bowles, Herb Gittes. Um, there, there's just an, a, a really fascinating uh, and very rigorous ways of understanding social organization and how people adapt and change and don't change and what are the factors that affect them. So we're getting a very sophisticated understanding of, of sort of adaptation and, I, I, and, and evolution uh, and how different kinds of organisms adapt. And I'd recommend the work of Martin Novak, I, the, who runs the, uh, the uh, Evolutionary Dynamics Center at Harvard and his group uh, as a whole. It's very rigorous work, and it can be applied to, to uh, designing social institutions. I mean, we're all p part of the same evolutionary process. Looking at it for, from that angle uh, of you know, the study of self-organizing organisms, what do you think of the design of Bitcoin or the way it it functions well I think there was you know I mean it was really brilliant I mean you, you're just uh, uh, I, I, I think that it, I mean when you when you consider all the things that were pulled together and there was there's a, 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 a seemed to be a single person's effort and to get the incentive mechanisms right I mean and, and, and then be able to launch something like that I, I think it was, it was just extraordinary um, and uh, it's sort of epical I mean uh, not, and I think it, I'm not sure how else you, you, you could have done it. So I may disagree with certain things I say, but that's part of the evolutionary paradigm of it. And, you know, there is a lot of debate about, you know, private blockchains, public blockchains, what, to, you know, what kind of currency design, what kind of incentive mechanisms you're, or consensus mechanisms you're going to use. I, I mean, it, it, they're, they're, it's broadened that discussion and whether proof of work is really what's required, particularly in an ecological way. And if you have identities and you're going to have whitelists, then do you really need such an onerous uh, consensus mechanism, that kind of thing. Um, but in, in, in the fact that something like that took off, I mean, and it's, but it's the, same, it's the same basic phenomena that you have, you know, uh, in, in any kind of peer-to-peer -peer distributed system. Um, and uh, so I... Uh, I, you know, I laud it. I mean, it was just, it, it was great. It changed, it, it, it created possibilities where there were none, say, four or five years ago. I don't know if you've seen, the, I'm curious what your thoughts on this. I don't, I don't know if you've seen this really fascinating talk by Mike Hearn that he gave a couple of years ago at Google, um, exploring the idea of autonomous vehicles and how you could have autonomous vehicles that were basically a public good and um, responding to markets and, and, and you know, going where there's demand and then perhaps like shutting off for a while uh, when there's no demand or moving to another city. And, and the idea that those vehicles could essentially run themselves. And uh, then the question is, you know, who, who owns the vehicle? Uh, exactly. If you have a market of these and it could be vehicles, it could be drones, it could be, you know, whatever. Exactly. Is, does that does that constitute uh, an artificial intelligence or to you? Or oh, yeah. is that just... I, I, is that I, just Devices responding to well, programs well, that were made wait, by humans. I mean, I mean, uh, yeah. I mean, and, and I'm very. And I just give a keynote on, on the Internet of Things. A group in Massachusetts was, uh, was focusing on that. And I think that the Internet of Things. Uh, what what is you're you're having more autonomous things. People think, oh, you got to have people in the loop all the time. You can't scale it and have people in the so therefore you have to allocate certain agency to the device. That's inevitable. 
And then the question is, to what extent is that, that device acting on your behalf? And if it is not, then how do you revoke that, that set of privileges? And, and when you start to think about the Internet of Things, I mean, these things are pretty smart things. These are ARM chips. I mean, that's sort of the basic, you know, the 64-bit ARM chips. You're having things that, that and then they can tie into a cloud. So if you look at uh, computing, so if you, uh, I just was looking at some of these new drones, and, they can, and you can have autonomous drones. And now, from an AI point of view, which, which blew the top of my head off of, was, you know, the problem with, with AI in my generation was it was very rule-based and very brittle. And, and so you, di and you didn't have a lot of data coming in, so you didn't have the ability to do dynamic modeling and verification and, and, and do real-time computation. So there was everything that was tried to capture in a brittle set of rules. Now that's not the case. And so you can have, and, and you can have drones flying in the wild, and they can know what a window is. Not, and they can, there are also things that they've never seen before that they can make reasonable judgments about. So, and then you can tie into the cloud. So the, the, the drone is, is as smart as the cloud. Uh, and these things can work in formation. Uh, and, of course, when you weaponize them, you, 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 you're creating quite a foe. Um, and I, we have not thought that through. And, and, and one of the areas we've really not thought through, and this is where you, people say, oh, personal data, privacy, who gives a damn? These are classic, these are who you are. These, these are new, it's, data is a new asset class. They're per, and, they, and it's got to be signed and verified. I mean, the, this, the military is running into this issue in that they don't know whether they have control over a drone or a satellite. Because they can't, they, they they can't sign for the, the for the the data that goes in it. They can't verify the provenance of it, um, and that that's happening in spades uh, uh, throughout the net. Um, I mean, if you look at your home, should be your castle. It should be the uh, the heart of privacy. Well, you've got a Samsung TV in there that's watching everything you're doing, and and doing a rec facial recognition, voice recognition, and feeding it back and selling it. It's a surveillance device. The same thing with Nest. And now. There's no, there's, there's no design point that gives you control over that data and what you want them to see. You can't, you can't intervene and control that. And that's just going to escalate. This is, this is not a good situation. It's time for a word from our sponsors, Voltoro.com, the gold to Bitcoin exchange. Now, we all know there's been no shortage of Bitcoin exchange scams and hacks in these recent years. And that's why when Philip and Josh, the two brothers behind Voltoro, decided to start that exchange in the wake of the Mt. Gox disaster. They wanted to do things differently. So they're really pushing the bar forward and innovating in terms of security, transparency, and auditability to ensure that customer funds are safe, secure, auditable, and so there's no, there's none of this Mt. Gox, you know, stuff going on. It's all on the up and up. So if you've been listening to the podcast, of course, you know Voltoro and perhaps you like Voltoro and you like what they do. Well, something new is happening, something really exciting is happening, and that's Voltoro is doing an equity crowdfunding campaign through Bank to the Future of Simon Dixon, who, of course, you know as well by this point. Uh, so if you're interested, you now have the chance of actually owning some equity in a startup, which is sort of a new thing, equity crowdfunding. And not just a startup, but a great Bitcoin startup, a great startup in this space. And you can even invest with Bitcoin. So if you're interested, check it out. That's on Bank to the Future. So BNK to the Future.com. And of course, we'll put a link in the show notes. And we would like to thank Voltura for their support of Epicenter Bitcoin and hope they're going to have a fantastic crowdfunding campaign. So you you've worked on on a specific software project too called open mustard seed right what is open mustard seed open mustard seed was an open source project that uh we started about four years ago um and it was an it was an, an effort to and actually there's a, there's a video on it pretty describes it it's a set of notions to give people control over their personal data and being able to have the aggregation point of personal data and create trust networks whereby people could have a principled way of sharing and releasing that data. And the key element here is, is that in the classic internet notion, the control should be at the edge of the node. And then the, the edge of the node now is now an individual in data and computation. And at that point, 
that you sh uh, any other you as an individual should have control of that. I also, and, and as it evolved, we had a developed what we call Windhover principles around personal control of data and sovereignty of individual identity. In other words, you should have not only control of your data, but you should have a control of your identities. And by that, I mean that in the classic notion, human roles controls, which means that. The government or the uh, banks or some other authority enrolls you, and they basically control your identity and tell you who you are. And this is not something you control. In our model, you have an open source, you have a protocol whereby you control it and you assert it, and other people will to, to accept that. And on the basis of that, then you can decide in a peer to peer way how you want to share your data. Now, we worked on it. Post mustard, open mustard seed. We worked on a a peer-to-peer -peer terms of service agreement where everyone in the network is in parity with everyone else, and that other party, that other entity, could be a company. But I have the right to extend and revoke my data at any point, and so I can use access tokens. I can do ways of one-time tokens for the release of the data. I can verify who's gotten it and have it signed for. Uh, but the aggregation point is the individual. And that gives you a 360-degree view of it, and therefore, if I can verify that, it becomes much more valuable to all parties' control. That sounds, that sounds, of course, fantastic, and we've talked often about, you know, topics and ideas like that on the show, but at the same time, it seems like where the world is going is not that direction, right? You have larger and larger institutions gathering more and more data, and of course, very often, their commercial interest is very much tied with the ownership of that data. So, so do you think this really has a chance? Yeah, yeah. I mean, well, I, yeah, no, I've been, I've been pushing this rock up a hill for 10, 15 years. And I can, so I've seen, I've seen a whole change in attitude over the last five or six years. Um, and what I'm also on the World Economic Forum. We came out with a, a, a notion of personal data as a new asset class that people should have control over it. That was adopted there. There's also, there is the, uh, the Consumer Data Bill of Rights in the U.S. government adopts that position. So does the EU adopt that position. This, and now even someone like GMSA, which is the um, Trade Association for Mobile uh, Phone Operators, believe that people should have control of their own data. The fact is they want to, they, they want to be the people that host it and monetize it. Um, but there's a recognition that, that in, in a classic Internet notion that, that if, if you can push it to the edge, you can create more value in that. Um, because you're able to have a natural aggregation point. And what you're finding at companies like Tar, you know, all these, these data breaches that happen is create a liability for companies in holding the data. They really don't want to have the PI, the personal identifying data. They would like to have access to rich, verifiable data they can build a relationship with their customer. So if you give them API access in a, in a protected way, in a better way, and they offload the liability. They're very, very happy with that. So I believe that there are strong incentives for major companies, and I've talked to them. I mean, I've talked to a lot of them. Banks agree with A number of banks agree with me on this one. Uh, I can't say which ones, but huge banks. Um, and they welcome this. Also, major brands welcome this. Uh, so I think this actually is where it's going to go. Yes, you have the Googles and you have the Facebooks that monetize your data. And this is where the big battle begins because you can see where Google and we're in, <laughs> they're collecting all the data about us um, and I have no control over that. They're going to they're gonna try to be an identity provider and they're going to try to monetize it through advertising. I think advertising is a dead model too and there are a lot of people in advertising who acknowledge that. Um, because once you know a lot about people and the, the impedance matches that actually if I get enough data I can give people what they want that's a different model than advertising, where you, you're sort of scattershot and you're, you're and you're making money on just being able to to spam people, uh, and you get all these false hits. Now that I think that's going to change dramatically, so I think you're going to have a different business model. Uh, and so when you get a different business model, a different value proposition, a different economics, then you're going to have a shift. So what, what, in this model, um, maybe I didn't understand really how it works, but how how do you prevent someone who has access to your data, who, to whom you've given access to your data, from copying it and keeping it for, for himself? Well, I mean, there, 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 there are technologies where you can give them, act, you can, there, there, there are various, 
there, there are about three different ways you can do that. Um, and, and I think that there's one model, I mean, this is uh, something we do that MIT will say, you have, you ask questions and you don't get the data, you just ask questions of the data. So you really don't possess the data. There are ways in which you can actually, uh, you can have a temporary hold on the data and then, then bring it back. And there are other ways in which you can actually then do it through, uh, and you can actually do it through in a contract. So you're saying the part of your agreement, a terms of service agreement, any party can retract the agreement and data, and we assign for that in a, in a um, uh, on the blockchain. So you can have that verified. Now, if a party breaches that, then they can be expelled from the network, and they can be subject to to certain kind of remedies. Um, so I think there's a combination of these things. Uh, yes, you can always get some bad actor that's going to hack some kind of weakness in the system, but the fact is, I, I think that you can increase the cost of that. Uh, in such a way that it, it, it that you can minimize, you make it an edge condition rather than in a central condition. Uh, that, that's an interesting thought to, to 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 have a terms of service on your data because it's, you know, oh often, yeah, no, that's you know, there's, there's terms of services to use Google to use iTunes, and essentially we are subject to their terms. Uh, but uh, I, I I agree that it would be great if we could have our own terms of service for data. That's exactly our data. You what can we use have. This- You can use my data like this. You can do this with it. Yeah, right. We have, I've been working on that for many, many years, but we've actually now implemented, it's, it's, it's a peer-to-peer terms of service agreement. And so, you know, and, and, uh, and it's enforced through a smart contract. And, and uh, so if, if a person's a bad actor, you, you know who, they, this is it, you know who they are, you can, they can be a huge reputational hit, and, then you can, and, you can, and you can do what the Greeks did, you can throw them out of the city, you know? That was the... <laughs> When you expel someone from the city when they're a bad citizen outside the walls, that had a huge cost. And you can do that through contract law. This is the interesting governance mechanism, particularly in a common law uh, jurisdiction. So you can do that. No, that, that, sounds, that sounds extremely exciting. And yeah, I mean, I do think if you start having these like blockchain-based maybe systems where it's like reputation on both sides, then maybe things like that become possible. So you mentioned before that you were also working on a startup. Can you share about what the goal is with that yeah. and what do you want yeah. to do? Yeah, I think what we what we recognize is that it's very important to establish an open source component to to this new ecosystem. And and you know one of the things that. Uh, I think you asked me earlier, is what the success of Bitcoin. The fact that it was all open source was really a huge, a huge issue, a huge plus. Um, so you're really trying to create a resource that is open to other people they can build value on. So what we are about, an intrinsic, and it is actually being able to support, uh, and, and it builds on an open source uh, project right now, called Fluxstream that has, um, it's, it's, uh, was done out of Carnegie Mellon and, and uh, that gives people control over their, it's sort of like quantified self stuff. The point is to be able to give, have someone set up their own container of their own data and be able to assert certain credentials about themselves, put it on the blockchain that they control and then being able to assert them, uh, I think you create the whole different kind of dynamics that people have different badges, different ways in which they can assert and authenticate certain attributes of themselves um, that will enable all sorts of uh, possibilities. Now, one of the areas that I think is that I mentioned is most critical is is this uh, what's happening in this new what I call sort of the gig and guild economy that's coming out when you look at the maker movement you look at uber you there's a whole you look at uh, uh, instacart you look at all these efforts to say well here's an independent contractor uh how do we create how do you when they're working for a company you're you're creating a certain asset skill assets and terms of your skills and your accomplishments why shouldn't you as an individual be able to benefit from that why can't you, in turn, work through your own network to create learning value, increase your craft, but also mitigate risk and enter into agreements with the Ubers or the um, Instacart, all these other kinds of services, or be a maker? I mean, what is how, the maker movement 
is 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 I think inevitably going to be there, and that to me is like an artisan movement. But it's not a guild is not in the sense the old sense of a guild. A guild I think is you, you, yes, it's a way in which people can come together, and you can use smart contracts to reduce the the enormous friction, legal and economic friction, and organizational friction in how to provide how to provide services. So. One of the things we're very interested in, and it comes out of the background at, at the uh, law lab, is how do you create, you know, self. There's so many legal contracts that are just very standard agreements that once people agree to them, and I have the right credential, I should be able to push a button and get a loan, or push a button and get a new passport, push a button and create a credential around credit that that is, is be independently verified. So we're looking at this in this, this, this new networked economy and also in developing countries um, where there's a huge opportunity and, and need for that. So that it, that's sort of the intrinsic value proposition um, and it's sort of based upon these principles and how to create basically an, an API network of a value that, that will spring a new economy and be allow you to monetize this in a very different ways than having the control of a, of a Google or a, or a Facebook. Like, Massive participation for lots of different people to be sort of distributedly innovative around how to create credentials, how to create value, and not have it be captured by a few small, big companies. Cool. Well, uh, John, thanks so much for, for coming on today and joining us. It's, it's really exciting, the things you're working on. And well, thank you very much. It's exciting to be all part of this together. So. If, if people want to learn more about your work, so we'll, of course, link to ID Cubed uh, and to the Bitcoin and Burning Man book. Is there some other place you want to send people to? Yeah, I, well, I'll send them to ID Cubed and eventually we'll, 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 we're going to be sending them to, to Intrinsic as well. <laughs> so that, that and, and we'll be able to do that and be, when we, be more official. But uh, I, the white paper I'm going to be putting out on the, on the ID Cube website. Okay, fantastic. Yeah, because you wrote a nice white paper that unfortunately is in draft stage, so we, we can't put a link up yet. But yeah. yeah, if you let us know, then you know we we can let uh, people know. I about will it definitely once do that. And I'm always welcome for feedback. I mean, this is a living conversation that people have, so I'm always I look forward to that. Yeah, no, thanks. So uh, one last thing before we wrap up. So we, we started this T-shirt contest, basically if, uh, bribing people. So if you leave us an iTunes review, we're gonna do uh, a drawing. I think we say it once a week, but let's do it once a month when we give out four or something like that, and then we send it to you. And of course, you can say it was the most enlightening hour you ever spent, or you can say it was miserable. And I want, I want my, <laughs> I want my money back. Uh, <laughs> uh, so, so either is fine. Um, so yeah, and and of course, if you do that, you need to send us an email because we have no way of identifying people on iTunes. So you need to send an email to show at epicenterbitcoin.com. Just let us know uh, which one it is. So yeah, so that's it. So thanks so much for okay, joining us. Okay, thank you us. very much. It was great. Enjoyed it. Absolutely. So yeah, so we put out new episodes of Epicenter Bitcoin every Monday. Of course, you can get it on iTunes or your favorite podcast app. You can also get the video on YouTube at youtube.com slash Bitcoin. And that's it. So thanks so much and we look forward to being back next week.